This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. How do you plead to the six counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties? Guilty. How do you plead to count 15 conspiracy to commit filing false documents in indictment number 23SC188947? Guilty. How do you plead to aiding and abetting false statements and writings and under accusation 23SC190514? Guilty. That was three key moments that took place in Georgia last week, featuring three of former President Donald Trump's previous lawyers, Sidney Powell, Kenneth Chesbrough, and Jenna Ellis. They all pleaded guilty to charges of attempting to overturn 2020 election results in Georgia. And in a separate financial fraud case in New York, Trump's former lawyer Michael Cohen also took the stand against Trump. He will ultimately be held accountable. And as I said the other day, that's what this is all about. It's accountability. So these are a few of the major developments in the cases against Donald Trump. Today, we want to find out what impact, if any, these developments could have on the federal charges against the former president. So joining us today is Paula Reed. She's senior legal affairs correspondent for CNN, and she's with us from New York. Paula, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. And also with us today is Andrea Bernstein. She covers legal issues for NPR. Her most recent podcast is called We Don't Talk About Leonard from On the Media and ProPublica. And Andrea, one day soon we'll have you back on the show to talk about that. But she's also previously co-hosted the podcasts Will Be Wild and Trump Inc. She's also author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps, and The Marriage of Money and Power. Andrea, welcome to On Point. Great to be back with you. Okay, so Paula, first of all, for uh, the many Americans who haven't been able to keep up with all the active court cases against the former president, can you just give us a, a quick rundown of what's uh, the cases that are currently actually in courts right now? Sure. So right now, uh, the former president faces a civil case, a civil fraud case in New York, uh, alleging something that has been alleged in the past, but this time it's in a civil courtroom, uh, that he defrauded uh, banks and did this by misrepresenting the value of his properties. Now, previously, his longtime lawyer and consigliere, Michael Cohen, had testified in Congress that Trump, for for many decades, had lied uh, to get more favorable terms on loans, but also would uh, lie about the value of his property in a way that would also advantageously impact his taxes. So that is actually uh, where he is physically sitting in a courtroom some days. But we also have other cases slowly moving towards a trial phase. Uh, The soonest uh, case that we will likely see is the January 6th federal case here in Washington, D.C. against former President Trump. There's also the classified documents case that the special counsel has brought. And then there's a sprawling RICO case down in Fulton County, Georgia, related to January 6th. So those are the key ones. There are some other outstanding civil matters. Those are the major cases. He also faces um, a criminal case in Manhattan related to alleged hush money payments. But that, again, not at the forefront right now. Okay. Thank you for that, Paula. It is quite a bit. So let's start by focusing on New York. And Andrea, you've been covering the trial every day that it's uh, been uh, going on in the courtroom. First of all, what's the mood been like? 
<laughs> hard, hard to describe the mood. I mean, I think sort of we're now, I guess, beginning week number five of this trial. And a lot of it has been spreadsheets and uh, accountants and bookkeepers and lawyers. So not, you know, the sort of you might hear the assistant attorney general say, turning your attention to cell number 958 on sheet one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's there's been a lot of that. Uh, and then uh, you have overlaid on that the um, former president, Donald Trump, showing up from time to time in this courtroom. It's a bigger courtroom than it might have been, but it's still a pretty small room to see the sort of protagonists and antagonists of this national drama sitting within feet of each other. Outside the courtroom, so right in the hallway through the doors, uh, Mr. Trump sort of says whatever he wants. For example, uh, I have to be here in this trial, so I can't be campaigning in Iowa, even though it's entirely voluntary. And all I can think is uh, that coverage must mean a lot to him, that Mm. sort of instant scrum of, uh, you know, hundreds of probably a hundred cameras packed into that courtroom, uh, TV and and still photographers, uh, for him to be able to say his bit, but inside he has to be silent. Mm. And then you have this moment that happened last week (laughs) when Michael Cohen came in and testified. And he is, I would say, the chief antagonist of Mr. Trump in this drama. He's the one who started it all with his um, testimony in Congress in 2019, as you alluded to. And uh, he was, uh, his direct testimony was kind of devastating for Mr. Mm -hmm. Trump, but you know, I would say that the defense attorney scored some points getting under his skin uh, in cross. Okay. Well, we're going so to get to that. that's moot. Yeah. So, so that's really interesting. And we'll get, we really want to dig into um, the Cohen testimony in a moment. But let me just rewind the clock a bit and go back to September 21st of last year when New York Attorney General Letitia James uh, first announced the accusations against members of the Trump uh, organization of fraud in the civil lawsuit that uh, you and Paula are describing. So here's what the New York AG said. I am announcing that today we are filing a lawsuit against Donald Trump for violating the law as part of his efforts to generate profits for himself, his family, and his company. The complaint demonstrates that Donald Trump falsely inflated his net worth by billions of dollars to unjustly enrich himself and to cheat this system, thereby cheating all of us. So that's New York Attorney General Letitia James from September of last year. Andrea, um, what more is Trump and the Trump Organization alleged to have done to falsely, uh, allegedly falsely inflate the value of, uh, you know, uh, Trump's net worth, essentially? Remind us specifically, uh, I think the one that caught everyone's attention was what he uh, said in a deposition about how much Mar-a-Lago might be worth? Well, (laughs) all of his personal properties uh, seem to be worth many, many, many times over uh, uh, what uh, the attorney general uh, says the documents show they believe. Now, I think it's worth just pointing out to all of your listeners that the judge in the case already uh, issued a summary judgment. That is, he already concluded that... Uh, Donald Trump and the other defendants had committed 
persistent and repeated fraud mm -hmm. in their business practices. That was the first cause of action of the attorney general's complaint. There are six more, and that's what's at issue in this trial. And also is at issue is how much of the $250 million that the attorney general says he owes the state he will have to pay. So there's already been a finding of fraud mm -hmm. against Mr. Trump. And now we're looking at whether he committed insurance fraud, whether there was conspiracy, uh, and a number of other issues related to that. I would say the most dramatic uh, accusation, the one that really caught people's attention, was about Trump Tower, in which ah. Mr. Trump said that his uh, penthouse apartment was three times the size that it actually was. And uh, as his former CFO said in a deposition, well, give or take $200 million, it made it the most expensive property in Manhattan. Obviously, he lived there, knew how much it was worth. And one of the interesting early things that we learned at trial is that uh, Mr. Trump actually was caught by Forbes magazine lying about the value of that, saying that it was three times the size it was. So what we learned was there was this behind the scenes scrambling and it was laid out in emails and in spreadsheets that uh, the Trump business had to then find $300 million or $200 million, the difference between the actual value and the, and the stated value, to keep his entire net worth the same. And you see this sort of, uh, you know, can we raise the, the value of 40 Wall Street, which is a downtown property? How about a golf course? And that is the, the sort of nature of the charges that this went on for uh, years. Uh, and under New York law, this is a very specific New York law. Under New York law, whether or not someone's harmed, you cannot persistently lie in the course of doing business. Mm, okay. So two really important things there, Paula, that Andrea pointed out. First of all, let's go back to what she said about that the judge has already issued that summary judgment against the Trump organization and, ascent, and dissolved the business certificates of Trump's companies. How significant is that, Paula? Incredibly significant. Um, this is going after his livelihood. I think this is a large part of why you're seeing the former president physically show up in court day after day when he might rather uh, wish to be in Iowa or out on the campaign trail. I mean, they are, of course, arguing that this is a partisanly motivated uh, pursuit, but this is incredibly serious. Uh, the idea that they would be able to basically completely dissolve his business that, this way, that would be devastating for him. This isn't just about him. This is about his family, his legacy. This is how they make money. I do want to caveat that this would be arguably uh, almost unprecedented. It would have to go through years and years of appeals. Mm. But this would be one of the most significant actions ever taken um, against the former president if it winds up, uh, you know, being upheld. Okay. Then also explain to us why um, why would Trump and his uh, financial associates wish to see again allegedly wish to seek to inflate the value of businesses and properties beyond just, you know, continuing to uh, advance the narrative of his business success. So beyond the ego of it all, the way his associates have explained it uh, is that 
if you inflate your net worth, you can get more favorable terms from banks, especially when it comes to loans. Now, of course, in the inverse, which he's also been accused of by some of his uh, former associates, if you uh, say your properties or your assets are worth less than they actually are, you can get more favorable terms on your taxes. So this is something that people close to the former president have accused him of doing for decades. And that is, in addition to the ego of it all, part of the alleged motivation for lying. Okay, Andrea, did you want to pick up uh, and add more to that? Well, what I mean, I think that this is sort of uh, there have been there are many cases about Trump's fraud, and I think what this one does is it sort of bundles it all up and and lays it all out uh, in one fell swoop. I mean, very early on uh, in 2019, um, I had done a story with my colleagues at ProPublica about this, mm-hmm. and we found the numbers don't match. That is the repeated pattern with Mr. Trump is that the numbers don't match what you tell the taxing authorities, what you tell the banks and what the attorney general says is he made $250 million extra than he should have made because of that fraud. I see. So tell the tax folks one thing to reduce your taxes, tell the banks something else to get more leverage off your loans. Okay, so we're going to talk more about what uh, Michael Cohen had to say in uh, New York when we come back in just a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today I'm joined by Paula Reed, senior legal affairs correspondent for CNN, and by Andrea Bernstein as well. She's author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, Trumps, and the Marriage of Money and Power. Also co-host of the podcasts Will Be Wild and Trump, Inc., And her latest is We Don't Talk About Leonard from On the Media and ProPublica. Okay, so we're now at the point where we're discussing uh, Michael Cohen's appearance on the stand in uh, the former president's New York financial fraud trial. So on Saturday, Cohen spoke with CNN's Aaron Burnett about his testimony. Did you make the case that Trump actually cooked the books, that he actually directed you to do that? The answer is yes. I think that the attorney general's office has more than enough information. In fact, they've already lost that point. They was already determined by Judge Ngoron that the Trump organization committed fraud. The rest of the case right now is all about disgorgement. How much money is the attorney general going to seek in terms of damages based upon the 
actions of Donald uh, and the Trump organization with a baseline, a baseline of 250 million. I predict it's going to be more like over 600 million. Hmm. Well, Andrea, other than my love for the simultaneously visceral and uh, esoteric language of the law, like using the word disgorgement, um, what more did Michael Cohen have to say on the stand than he has already said, as you pointed out uh, in in previous moments, like testifying before Congress? Well, when he testified before Congress, this was sort of new to the nation, mm-hmm. this entire idea. People were just learning about this and it was sort of, a, you know, congressional testimony is five minutes of one party, five minutes of the other. It's kind of disjointed. On his direct examination, the thing that Michael Cohen did that none of the other witnesses have done is sort of tie together the whole uh, all of the threads, Mm -hmm. and to put himself in the room with Donald Trump and Alan Weisselberg, the former chief financial officer of the Trump Organization. And he basically describes how it works, that Mr. Trump invites him into his office, and he goes into his office, and Alan Weisselberg is there, and Mr. Trump says... I don't really think that my uh, net worth is $4.5 billion. I think it's more like $6 billion. And so Mr. Cohen and Mr. Weisselberg go into Weisselberg's office, according to Cohen's testimony, and they start to figure out, okay, well, how can we come up with another $1.6 billion in value? That that was the assignment. They, they had to make it so. Reverse engineer was the term that Cohen used over and over again. And that they would do things like he would say, for example, they would look at one of their properties, like uh, their Park Avenue property, and instead of doing what you're supposed to do when you value a uh, property, which is sort of look at values for actual comparables, they would take the value of the most expensive apartments in Manhattan and times it by the number of units in the building and come up with this fictitious number. Or sometimes they would just Google uh, values and plug them in to get, for example, in in this example, an extra $1.5 billion of value. And that is what uh, Mr. Cohen laid out, and he sort of put himself in the room with Donald Trump. I see. Well, hang on for just a second, Andrew, because I also um, heard you say earlier about the fact that uh, uh, Trump's defense team may have scored some points in cross with uh, with Cohen. I want to come back to that. But, but in all journalistic rigor, uh, Paula, let me ask you this. Why is Trump on trial for these alleged uh, financial uh, fraudulent actions when it sounds like a lot of what he and his associates are being accused of is pretty common in corporate America? I mean, you know, you call it we call it what uh, creative accounting and valuing assets kind of the way you want to be favorable for you uh, in terms of taxation purposes, which is how we have some major, you know, blue chip corporations in America paying zero dollars in taxes to the IRS. Why is this different? Why is Trump on trial when uh, other companies are not? Sure. Well, here, I mean, the attorney general of the state of New York believes this went beyond just playing at the edges, right, of what is legal and what is creative to actual fraud. I mean, she is alleging that he and his co-defendants repeatedly uh, committed fraud, inflating assets on financial statements because they, again, wanted to get these better terms on commercial real estate loans and insurance policies. 
Now, I want to know, though, this is a civil case. This is not a criminal case. Mm -hmm. No one's going to go to jail here. And what's at the core uh, here, really, what's what's at risk is is Trump's business. But again, you have people like Michael Cohen, who has publicly said this. There have been other, uh, at least one other criminal uh, case related to this. And the Trump Organization CFO, Alan Weisselberg, a lot of law enforcement officials in the state of New York and elsewhere have looked into this, and the attorney general believes this goes beyond just being creative and maximizing uh, the flexibility in the law to full-blown fraud. Gotcha. Andrew, did you want to add to that? Yeah. So, I mean, I've covered uh, New York real estate (laughs) for some time. And I mean, it is a business where everybody understands that you are constantly inflating values. But there are sort of, you know, I mean, there's a thing called generally accepted accounted procedures and sort of there's an unofficial generally accepted amount that you could inflate the value. And what everybody has said to me, and I think what this trial is bearing it bearing out, is that this is off the charts. This uh-huh. is sort of um, there's a connection between this and what normally goes on in New York real estate, but it is so unusual, so out of the ordinary that it rises, as has already been found uh, by the judge. Now Trump is is appealing it, but right now Trump committed persistent and repeated fraud. Uh, according to the summary judgment ruling in this case. Okay, so let's hear a little bit more from what Michael Cohen had to say after the fact uh, about his testimony. Again, this is from CNN. And by the way, Paula, I think I might have accidentally demoted you to senior legal affairs correspondent when you're actually the chief legal affairs correspondent for uh, CNN. My apologies for that. Um, but no he, worries. But here's Aaron Burnett, again, talking to Michael Cohen about an instant uh, where... Trump's lawyer asked him about the truthfulness of his testimonies from February uh, 28th, 2019, testimony, um, I guess, that Trump gave. And the lawyer asked Cohen, uh, asked if Cohen had lied under oath when he said he couldn't recall whether Trump or Alan Weisselberg directed him to lie about Trump's net worth. And so here's how Cohen explained his answer to Aaron Burnett. Donald never came out and said specifically, Michael and Alan, I want to inflate the numbers to be six billion instead of five billion. What he does, and I've stated this many times, I wrote about it in my books, Donald Trump speaks like a mob boss. What he does is he says, you know, I'm actually not worth five billion dollars. I'm worth six. Why don't you guys go and figure it out? That's not specifically telling us. Hmm. Andrea, I mean, the in the room uh, testimony from someone like Cohen would seem to be would seem to carry a lot of weight. And yet I am curious to hear um, what you observed in terms of how he was cross-examined by Trump's lawyers. Well, let me just say that, you know, I uh, in real time watched the Michael Cohen testimony in 2019. Mm -hmm. He has been pretty consistent uh, in that Donald Trump did not directly order him, you know, go inflate the values, that he would say something and that Michael could Michael Cohen understood the code and the code was get my values up Uh, now. Where uh, he has been, and the way that the questions were asked, that was a little sort of confusing in the way it came out. Michael Cohen, where he foundered a little, was he pleaded guilty, and I was there in 2018, to uh, five counts of tax evasion having to do with his personal taxes. And he later said, well, I just did that because I felt compelled to do that, but I didn't really do that. So Trump's lawyers really made hay of that. And they were said, OK, so when you pleaded guilty and said you committed uh, tax evasion, 
you were lying. You were lying under oath to a judge. And of course, he is sitting there in front of another judge. Uh, there's no jury in this case, so that judge is uh, going to be making the determination. And they really, 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 really leaned into this. At one point, uh, Mr. Cohen said when the uh, Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba, had asked this for, you know, maybe the fifth time, he said, asked and answered. And uh, another lawyer, Charles Kai, stood up and said, uh, Your Honor, this witness is out of control. He is not allowed to be his own lawyer. He is not allowed to make objections. Uh, and that is sort of how it went. So what they were saying is there wasn't this sort of big break. What they were kind of trying to argue is there wasn't a big break with Mr. Cohen where he was a liar when he was on Team Trump and then has been telling the truth ever since. They tried to say, look, the man is, is not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the interesting things is that in the courtroom, uh, you didn't just see the sort of attorney general and the press. There was the entire team for the upcoming hush money case, the criminal case, from ah. the DA's side and from Trump's side. And that case, which is a, is a criminal case in New York, uh, will also be relying a great deal on the testimony of, of Michael Cohen. And I think both sides sort of went for instructions on how that criminal case will go. Interesting. And... Also, I do think that the Trump team was making an argument, you know, sort of like uh, yelling at the ref for the next call. They were trying to make an argument about Mr. Cohen uh, for the upcoming trial, criminal trial in New York. I got it. Now, just very, very quickly, Andrea, since you did mention um, uh, the former president's lawyer, Alina Haba, there was a flurry of news earlier this month about why there is no jury in this trial, right? As you pointed out, um, the judge will be making the decisions um, and there was some reporting about how uh, Alina Haba may have not requested a jury trial. I mean, where has that all that landed? Well, the judge pointed out on day one that no one requested no a one jury did. trial. Okay. But he also pointed out that had they requested it, given the nature of the, the kind of trial and the determination that has to be made about, as you mentioned, disgorgement, which is sort of a legal term that I haven't heard of before this trial, but has to do basically means how much money Mr. Trump will have to pay. Literally coughing it up. <laughs> yes. That uh, because of the nature of that, the judge sort of seemed to suggest that had anyone asked, he would have said no, because it uh, is not consistent with New York law. But in any event, it was not tested. Mr. Trump's team, uh, which is Alina Haba and uh, Charles Kais and a few other lawyers, didn't ask for it. And so there is just this judge. Now, I say just. I mean, you know, I was also in the E. Jean Carroll case and, and that um, that uh, verdict in a civil case came back so fast uh, that, uh, you know, sort of many of us had barely been able to finish our lunch <laughs> before we were called back to the courtroom. So I don't know whether a jury would be finding any differently than this judge. It's a counterfactual that is impossible to speculate about. Understood. Okay, so let's listen to um, a little bit of uh, comment to the press that Alina Haba has made um, following a day in court. This is from October 17th. We have heard numerous witnesses come in and out of this court wasting taxpayer dollars, wasting numerous taxpayer dollars in a city that has fallen apart because they don't want to believe that any business in New York can conduct themselves without the Attorney General sticking her nose in your business with a statute that has never been used against an individual. This is a scary precedent legally for any business in New York. Now, Paula, I don't want to give short shrift to all that's happening in Georgia, but help us uh, sort of make the connection, if any. What impact could this civil 
financial fraud case currently going on in New York have on, I mean, other cases, specifically, I'm thinking of the federal ones, I guess, uh, pending against the former president? I mean, the the New York case is really separate and apart yeah. from, I mean, what is happening at the federal level, because the federal case is brought by the special counsel. You have a January 6th prosecution. You have the Mar-a-Lago documents prosecution down in Fulton County. You have the January 6th case. I mean, in some ways, we're getting a sense of how Trump is is testing the gag order. He has one in New York. He now has one in D.C. Um, as for Alina Haba, uh, her speech there, I mean, that is something we're going to see, which is the idea that all of these prosecutions, well, this is a civil case she's referring to, but the other criminal cases, that everything is a partisan pursuit. And the former president is the victim uh, of, you know, partisan animus. That is something that will be consistent. But otherwise, I believe the New York case is mostly contained unto itself. Got it. Okay. Uh, Had to ask, though, because when there's so many um, sort of litigating balls up in the air, I just want to be sure that we're we're understanding potentially the impact of where any one of them could land. Okay. I I might just... Oh, yeah, go ahead, Andrea. Yeah. Just... I might just add to that that um, uh, not to disagree with Paula, but I do think that you see this continuity that on the day that uh, Cohen was testifying was the day that Jenna Ellis pleaded guilty, and they are both former lawyers to Mr. Trump who Mr. Trump did not pay their legal bills and who then, as a result, began to, as they say, testify truthfully against him. So you do see this pattern across the country of Trump's legal team, people who feel that they were betrayed by Mr. Trump now speaking out and uh, being witnesses for, in Georgia, the prosecutor, Mm. in New York, in the civil case against Mr. Trump. Well, let's take that and move to Georgia then, where Tamar Hallerman joins us. She's senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, covering the Fulton County investigation into whether former President Donald Trump or his allies interfered in Georgia's 2020 Elections, And by the way, she's also co-host of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Breakdown podcast. Tamar, welcome. Hi, Magna. Okay, so we've just got a couple minutes before we have to take our next break. So give us the quick summary of uh, what it's been like in the courtroom, as I just asked Andrea about New York, um, especially as these three uh, guilty pleas from three of the former president's lawyers have come through in Georgia. Well, we've sat through a ton of procedural hearings over the last couple of weeks. We were expecting a speedy trial to begin with Ken Chesbro and Sidney Powell, two of the attorneys who were representing Trump in the aftermath of the election. But then in very rapid succession, in the hours before jury selection was about to begin, these plea deals kind of popped up out of nowhere. Um, in Georgia, we have the benefit of having all of our court proceedings streamed on YouTube, which has been really great uh, as a journalist trying to cover all of this in real time. But also, we've gotten very little notice, only of a couple minutes, that these plea deals were about to emerge. And that's exactly how we found out about Jenna Ellis last week, about Sidney Powell, and about Ken Chesbro. Okay. And specifically, uh, we've got a minute before our break now. What are they pleading or have they pleaded guilty to? Well, they've each pleaded guilty to different charges. Um, Sidney Powell was a series of misdemeanors. Ken Chesbro and Jenna Ellis each pleaded guilty to a felony um, having to do with whatever different parts of the alleged conspiracy in Georgia that they were involved in. So Jenna Ellis, for example, pleaded guilty to one felony count of aiding and abetting false statements in writings for her role in testifying before Georgia legislators in December of 2020. 
I see. Okay. So with that, we're going to take a pause here because there's a lot of detail to sort through in terms of what's been happening in Georgia. And when we come back from the break, we'll be doing that. Tamar Hallerman with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Stand by for just a moment. Paula Reed at CNN and Andrea Bernstein, host of the We Don't Talk About Leonard podcast and the Will Be Wild and Trump Inc. podcasts as well. Today, we're trying to get a handle on all of the developments that have been happening in the several trials against former President Donald Trump and what, if any, impact they could have on the major federal trials or federal cases against him as well. So we'll have more in just a minute. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Just a note on a show we're working on for a bit later. It's going to be about plastic and how the United Nations is currently negotiating a treaty to reduce plastic waste around the world. So we want to hear from you. Uh, Are you trying to use plastics less frequently, if that's possible in this world? Do you no longer use single-use plastics, or is that getting tough to do? And what do you think would it need to take, uh, would we need to do as humanity overall to reduce plastic use overall? Give us a call at 617-353-0683, or you can share your uh, message with us on the On Point Vox Pop app. Just look for On Point Vox Pop wherever you get your smartphone apps. Today we're talking about the current cases in court against former President Donald Trump and trying to sort of get a roundup of what's been happening, which is a lot in recent weeks. So let's hear from a a moment from uh, when Jenna Ellis, the former president's former lawyer, became uh, another defendant in Fulton County, Georgia, to take a plea deal. In the wake of the 2020 presidential election, I believed that challenging the results on behalf of President Trump should be pursued in a just and legal way. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information, especially since my role involved speaking to the media and to legislators in various states. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. In the frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. Tamar Hallerman uh, from the AJC there. Uh, you know, there's the, the thought about, as Andrea said, 
very uh, accurately regarding the sense of betrayal that Trump's former lawyers may be feeling towards uh, the former president. But also, do these plea deals indicate uh, a couple of other things, the strength of maybe the state's case and uh, potentially the fact that there was willingness by or is willingness by Ellis and others to potentially provide evidence or even testify against Trump uh, in Georgia? You know, Magna, I have been reporting a lot recently about Georgia's really sprawling racketeering law. And as I've talked to a lot of legal experts and academics about this, they've described a traditional racketeering case as, as a pyramid. And prosecutors are kind of working their way up more and more to the top. They're trying to get use the, the little fish to get to the, the big fish by striking all of these plea deals. Well, a lot of the analysts I've spoken to have been very surprised at how quickly DA Fonnie Willis has been able to even get to the medium-sized fish or even larger fish. Folks who have had individual relationships with the former president. Somebody like Jenna Ellis was part of the inner circle in the Trump campaign. Not only did she have a relationship with the former president, but she also was kind of the the right-hand woman of Rudy Giuliani. Um, She worked with folks like Mark Meadows, Sidney Powell. And so it's possible that her testimony in this case could implicate all of those people. And so folks, I think, are surprised at, at how quickly the DA mm. has gotten to those people. Mm. Now, uh, Andrea, I know we only have you for um, a little bit more time, so I would love to hear your thoughts on um, all of these, you know, guilty pleas in rapid succession from uh, that we're seeing in Georgia. Well, they're not good news <laughs> for the former president. Uh, and I think it also sort of simplifies the case. Otherwise, we would be in the middle of a five-month trial now uh, in Georgia. I mean, I think what is interesting in particular about Jenna Ellis is that she is not someone who was just a lawyer for Trump, but Mm. she was part of his message machine, both during his 2020 campaign, uh, prior to uh, the events of January 6th, and then after January 6th. And so she sort of is kind of had, um, you know, both the role of giving legal advice, but also sort of presenting an image, presenting a view of Mr. Trump's world and was uh, quite close to Rudy Giuliani. And I think that is the person who is sort of probably most destabilized by her guilty plea, which is a contains a clause that she has to continue to cooperate, basically, whenever the prosecutors want to hear from her. So uh, yes, uh, this case is gathering speed. Yes, having these three former individuals who, uh, you know, while not maybe as central as Rudy Giuliani or or Mark Meadows to the alleged, or or John Eastman to the alleged conspiracy in Georgia, uh, know a lot. And it was just one testimony. Michael Cohen, a sort of, you know, problematic known lawyer who has brought a heap of trouble on Mr. Trump in New York. Uh, now there are at least three of them in Georgia uh, who are willing to testify mm-hmm. at trial. Mm. Well, Andrea Bernstein, author of American Oligarchs, The Kushners, The Trumps and The Marriage of Money and Power, also co-host of the podcast Will Be Wild and Trump, Inc. And your most recent podcast is We Don't Talk About Leonard. That's uh, coming to the public along with On the Media and ProPublica. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's always great to talk to you. Okay, so Paula and Tamar, stick with me because there's a lot more about Georgia I want to dig into here. And Paula, first of all, um, 
talk about Jenna Ellis and um, and Sidney Powell for a second. We're gonna we're gonna dig a little bit more into the Ken Chesborough piece in in a minute, but you know, other than um, infamously saying that she was gonna release the Kraken uh, <laughs> in order to to convince the public that uh, Trump had won the twenty twenty election, what do you see as the significance of Powell uh, pleading guilty? And probably the most significant guilty plea, the most significant deal that Fonnie Willis has secured so far, because Sidney Powell was one of the most forward-facing members of the legal team uh, perpetuating these lies uh, about the election. Now, she and Chesbrough were scheduled to go to trial this month, and anyone who watched these hearings could see. It was pretty clear. Prosecutors weren't willing to bring this case. So there was an incentive for both sides, lawyers for the defendants and prosecutors, to strike a deal. And both Sidney Powell and Ken Chesbrough got pretty damn good deals, right? They're going to keep out of jail uh, if they follow a certain terms of their probation. They won't have a record. And both of them will likely be, be able to possibly keep their law licenses in certain jurisdictions. So these were wins both for the defendants and for prosecutors. But the fact that they have cooperation from Sidney Powell is significant and something that we're watching at the federal level at the January 6th uh, trial is whether Sidney Powell would also potentially cooperate with the special counsel. Uh -huh. She has not been charged, but she is a co-conspirator. So we're watching very closely because she could be because of the meeting she was in. She was at the White House. She was in the room where it happened, although they did eventually push her off the legal team. She would be a significant cooperator for any prosecutor. Yeah. So I was also uh, re remembering what Andrea was saying about when Cohen was on the stand in New York last week, that uh, both defense and prosecutor teams for a subsequent trial were were watching to see how, um, you know, how Cohen testified. Because as people take the stand, what they're saying becomes very public or as trials unfold. In this case, though, Paula, what I'm wondering about is now... As you pointed out, there will be no trial of Powell, Ellis, or, or Chesborough. Does that serve to the advantage or the disadvantage of the former president that um, all the evidence that would have been brought against those three is now essentially going to be kept under wraps? Yeah, his lawyers have told me they believe that the biggest problem isn't even these plea deals. It's that they're not going to get a preview of Fonnie Willis's case. That's what they had hoped to get out of the trial for the two defendants. Uh, they're not terribly worried, again, uh, about these cooperation deals. I don't think it's likely that there'll be any Fulton County trial for former President Trump before the 2024 election. This is a case that is expected to take over four months. And if you look at the calendar next year, mm. you already have two federal cases on the calendar. One of them will likely go. The other, it's unclear. There's just no room for this case. So it's going to be a while um, before the former president's defense attorneys will get a chance to, to really understand exactly how much cooperation prosecutors have and get a better sense of their case. Okay. Tamar, remind me, because I'm going to be perfectly honest, it's very hard to keep um, all the activities that happened specifically in Georgia uh, after November of 2020 straight in my head. Um, but uh, Ken Chesbro, in particular, if memory serves, his guilty plea is, is particularly notable because he was one of the key architects of the false electors scheme as well that uh, was part of the, uh, the the big lie essentially after 2020. Is that right? Exactly. He was viewed as, as one of the principal authors of that plan. He wrote a series of memos suggesting that the General Assembly in Georgia and many other swing states as well as Congress could name Trump the winner of those states, even though Joe Biden won. And 
So that's a, a crucial kind of leg of this alleged conspiracy in RICO. And if you really look at this indictment in Georgia, it really is alleging maybe four or five different alleged conspiracies that kind of all worked toward the same goal of keeping Donald Trump in power. So one was the the Trump elector plan. One was the breach of election data in Coffee County in, in South Georgia. One was um, spreading lies and myths, mistruths about the, the vote count in Georgia. Um, one was the harassment of, of poll worker Ruby Freeman. And another was phone calls made to pressure, pressure Georgia elections officials. So as you look at these different plea deals that are taking place, you can see that DA Willis has been able to secure cooperation with people involved in several of these different uh, legs of the stool, if you will. Ken Chesbro can speak to the electors. Jenna Ellis can speak to misinformation to state um, state legislators. Sydney Powell can talk about the um, the Coffee County um, elections data copying uh, <laughs> that whole saga. So it's interesting to see how the DA is building that case already and how she already has cooperating witnesses. Mm, fascinating. Okay, now it may not uh, be meaningful in terms of evidence in a. Uh, a court of law. But when you mentioned the call to former Secretary of State Raffenberger that Trump made, uh, you know, infamously in the recording, you hear Trump saying, well, you just got to find me 11,000 votes, right? Um, it reminded me of what uh, Andrea said that uh, when Michael Cohen testified last week in New York about that uh, the former president doesn't ever say explicitly do X, that he speaks in a certain way that sort of gets people's attention or, or guides them as to what he wants them to do. I mean, is that is that a similarity that you're seeing in Georgia? Sure. And and as you talk to legal experts, you know, some of them said that, you know, the, the phone call, the call uh, with with Brad Raffensperger wasn't going to be enough to prosecute Donald Trump because mm. you're right. The the verb find, find me 11,780 votes, that can be interpreted in any number of ways. And for a jury to convict, you have to find guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. There can't be any other reasonable explanation for somebody's actions. And so that's why I think the DA really broadened this case to show that that this was one of many legs in all of this um, alleged criminal scheme. Got it. Well, Tamar Hallerman, a senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and co-host of the AJC's Breakdown podcast, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope you'll consider joining us again in the future as things continue to move forward in Georgia. Anytime. Okay, so Paula, got about four minutes left here, and we need to to see if how many of these strings we can pull together regarding um, the impact of the cases that Jack Smith has brought against the former president. I mean, how would you read that? So I think what last week we saw some pretty good writing, right, by the screenwriters here, because you have Michael Cohen, the original flipper, the original lawyer or consigliere turned Trump antagonist coming face to face in the courtroom with his former boss to testify against him. And that is something that we are going to see playing out again and again and again, likely first off um, in the January 6th case. It, we've learned uh, that his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, not just a witness, the witness has given some testimony uh, to the special counsel, has cooperated, though it's unclear if he has a formal, formal deal, but has given testimony that completely contradicts 
Trump's public narrative that the election was stolen. Uh, he has uh, reportedly told prosecutors that he told Trump that, look, they lost and that he hasn't seen any evidence to suggest that Trump won. I mean, that's incredibly damning to the former president and a critical witness for the prosecution. Then eventually in Fulton County, you're going to see at least three of his former lawyers likely testify against him. So I think that's what you're seeing tying all of these cases together last week. You have Michael Cohen testifying in the New York civil case, the New York criminal case lawyers watching, because he'll be critical there eventually when that case goes, knowing what's happening with Mark Meadows, watching this all unfold in Fulton County. It's the same theme and something you're going to see, these courtroom reunions between Trump and his former lawyers again and again and again over the next few years. It seemed, well, next few years. Okay, well, then that answered my question because I was about to ask that um, it, it's all it's guaranteed then that, that these cases or some of them will be continuing on through the election next year. So the January 6th case is scheduled for March. Uh, the Manhattan case is scheduled for early next year, the hush money case. I expect that will move the January 6th case. The judge, Chutkin, said, Judge Tanya Chutkin said something that federal judges rarely say, which is this case is not moving. They're usually not that certain. That case will likely go forward. The Mar-a-Lago documents case is scheduled for May, but I think there's a chance that could get moved. It's very complicated. It took lawyers a long time. And like I said before, it's hard to see where you find four months to put Fulton County mm-hmm. uh, on next year. And the Justice Department historically uh, has not wanted to do things that could impact an election. It's unclear if that will uh, apply to federal prosecutions, but it's just hard to see that Merrick Garland, the attorney general, would want Trump in a criminal court courtroom in September or October that close to the election. So I think you'll see at least one criminal case next year. If the former president is reelected, he could make any remaining federal prosecutions through his attorney general go away. And the Fulton County case, the New York cases would just kind of hang out there until after he was done um, with his second term. So it's 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 unclear how long it's going to take for all these cases to go forward, if all of them will eventually go forward. But it's going to be a while and it's not all going to be wrapped up next year. So finally, Paula, then, I mean, just just tell us how remarkable you feel like this this moment is because the list of cases the list of uh, of indictments uh, and the fact that we're talking about a, a former president who's running again I, I, I don't think we've ever been here before no and we say that all the time right over my past decade of coming covering that yeah. <laughs> legal problems we've never been here before but it's true and I think the biggest news last week was getting an answer on what's going on with Mark Meadows because he was very quiet the Trump team doesn't know what he's up to um, and he's very duplicitous in terms of what he said publicly. He published a whole book insisting that the election was stolen. But then to learn he's telling prosecutors something different, that is significant both in the narrative of, of January 6th and election subversion, but also one of the most damaging things to happen to the former president in a long time. Well, Paula Reed, chief legal affairs correspondent for CNN with us from Washington. Always great to have you, Paula. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.